Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, I've mentioned this before. It's the over, overall theme of our sermon series. Um, the church in Colossae, some 2,000 years ago, uh, began and was planted in a good way. You know, a lot of you are planting gardens. We finally have sunlight. It's actually warm. I don't want to complain and say it's too warm, but it's too warm. Um, <laughs> when I can sweat when I'm just sitting, it's too hot. Um, but that being said, people are planting gardens, doing yard work. I did yard work this week, and it was just really, it, it just, you're just seeing life like spring up again. It's a little late, but it's here. Um, the church in Colossae was um, planted, and, and it was begun, and it started off well, like maybe some of our gardens do. And then if you ever had a garden, just like not take. Like every garden I've ever planted is just like, oh, look, it's growing. Oh, it's dead. Like I watered it, fed it, gave it the things it needs, and just something, uh, 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 some kind of animal comes and eats the stuff or bugs or, or it's just, just for some reason, it's just wasn't planted at the right time. I don't know. The church in Colossae was planted correctly. There was nothing wrong with, with the way that church was started. Um, when Paul left that church plant, um, it was good for, for quite a few years. But then, slowly but surely, not like right up front, just little, little variations of the gospel happened. People came in and said, you know, worshiping Jesus is good, but have you ever heard about uh, the Sabbath festivals? No, I never really heard about that. Well, you know, if you go to the Old Testament, script, the scriptures, they would have called it. They wouldn't have called it the Old Testament. And you see that God ordained these uh, Israelites to do these different festivals. You should incorporate that as a requirement for worship. And it started off subtly and it sounded good. But after a few decades, what you have is these legalisms and these added on requirements that have nothing to do with the salvation that Jesus has purchased on the cross. And so Paul has to write to them because these folks, what they're looking for is that satisfaction that comes from walking with Christ, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. If I celebrate this festival, then I will feel close to the Lord. If I give a certain amount, if I uh, read a certain amount of scriptures, if I pray so much, if I'm at church a certain amount of time, if I just do all of these things, then eventually I will feel complete. Paul has a right to them to tell them, no, the fullness that you're looking for has always been there. It's found in Jesus. It's not by adding more stuff. It's by getting back to Christ and allowing him to be your fullness. Paul will say, and I should have this memorized by now, I believe it's in the book of Philippians, that I've learned what it's like to be poor and I've learned what it's like to, ha to be rich and I've learned what it's like to be uh, homeless and I know what it's like to have a roof over my head and I know what it's like to be hungry and I know what it's like to be well-fed. But in all things, I've learned the secret and the secret is to be content in Christ. That if I have Christ and nothing else, I have everything. That all this other stuff that we get to enjoy, and, and understand this, we live in a very affluent society. We have so much stuff. We rent places to store our stuff. We have so much, and yet we are still seeking that fulfillment, just like the Colossian church. And so the Colossian church, we shouldn't look down on them, and how could they do that? We should look at them and go, oh, they're just like us. They're just doing it in a different way. So Paul writes to them to correct this. It's, a, it's a, re a gentle rebuke, but it's a rebuke nonetheless. You're not doing this right. This is how you should be doing this. And if we struggle with pride, and, and a lot of us do, that's the last thing we want to hear, right? 
you've got to change. You're doing it wrong. It's like, no, I've been doing it right. You're wrong. Well, let's go back to what the Word of God says. So I pray that you brought your Bible. If you haven't, make it a habit to bring your Bible, bring your notebook. And uh, I have a tendency to talk a little fast. So writing stuff, uh, like Bible references and stuff, is a really good habit to develop so you can go back and study later. Colossians 2 and 16 says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, that's a big word we're going to talk about in a little bit, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nursed and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, or of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And in quotations, Paul says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Jesus, um, your word is good and perfect and pure. You do not need an editor. You do not need someone to come uh, explain or, or, or try to cover for what you've said or done, Lord. We want to hear your word. I simply want to proclaim it, Lord. It's, I, I don't want to change it. I don't want to add to it. I'm just asking that your word would go out, that your Holy Spirit would take it and drive it deep into the hearts of your people, that we might be changed, that might, we might be cr uh, conti that continued new creation that you've called us to be. And above all things, may Jesus be glorified. In his name we pray, amen. So what's the number one verse non-Christians know? Close, probably. Um, but they probably could only quote part of it. But what's, uh, let's just say that's number one. What's number two? You're wrong. <laughs> that's John 3.16. Yep. And that's, that, see, we're Christians, most of us. And so we've got all these verses coming up. But here's the number one non-Christians know. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Why? Because we as Christians, from time to time, will point out, hey, this thing or this action or whatever is sinful. And all of a sudden, they become Bible scholars and they quote, judge not lest you be judged. And some Christians who aren't rooted in the word go, oh, you know, I, I think I've heard that before. Most non-Christians, if you just ask them, where do you find that in the Bible? They, they won't be able to tell you. They've just heard it from other non-Christians and have used it kind of as their, their back door to get out of whatever awkward situation they're in to kind of get you from calling them out on their sin. It's found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It's during the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching to the people and telling them, judge not lest ye be judged. And that's the King James Version. It's always, it's ironic to me. I don't understand the King James, but when it comes to judge not, it's like, oh, King James, boom. In Colossians 2 and 16, Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul says, don't let anybody judge you. Here's the problem we run into when it comes to judging. Um, we're, we are told as Christians from non-Christians that we're not allowed to judge. 
and then they quote the scripture, and there's some confusion. If we're not in the word rooted in it, we, we might fall for that kind of scheme to not call people out. And, and Christians will do the same thing. I don't mean to just throw non-Christians under the bus. When you have a Christian friend and they're doing something sinful and you call them out on it, well, what right do you have to judge me? Only God can judge me. Like, of all the people you want to have judge you, you'd rather stick with God than just man? Like, the guy who could see everything you do, um, you'd rather have him judge you? That doesn't make sense to me. But whatever. Only God can judge me, blah, blah, blah. Now, let me ask you this. What if I said, um, Dan, I'll use you as an example since you're back there uh, and you've been doing such a good job today. Um, Dan, you, you know, you just, you drive your truck too fast. In a 55, and I'm not saying this is an actual thing. This is hypothetical. I don't know that you do this. Um, you're driving like 80, 90 miles per hour. And you know what? I just, buddy, I think that's a sin because you're, you're taking your life into your own hands. You're not obeying the laws. You're, you're putting other people's lives at risk and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So would that be a judgment? In a sense, it would be. I'm judging that your actions are sinful. Now what if Dan, same guy, I come up and say, Dan, you're just a handsome man. Yeah, the Lord has just blessed you, and I think that you are just dashing, right? This is awkward, and that's okay, kind of the point. My point is, haven't I just judged him again? Haven't I just done the same thing, but in a different direction? But nobody ever calls that into question. Nobody ever says, hey, you called me pretty. Don't judge me. Now, most of you men probably would if I said you're handsome. You'd probably say, don't, don't judge me, but in the less, you know, because you're being creepy, that kind of reason. Um, my point is this, when it comes to our sin, we get defensive, don't judge me. But when it's not sin, when it's a compliment and it's still judging, we're all for it. And so on what, I think what you call this when you do one thing and, 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 and do another and they don't, they're not compatible, we call that hypocrisy. It's hypocritical to decide which judgment we approve of and which one we don't. So what does Paul and what does Jesus mean when it comes to judgment and not allowing judgment uh, to occur in our lives? Well, number one, Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not that you may not be judged. And most people stop there, but there's a lot more verse after that. And so we as Christians, we should go to these verses that the world pulls out and not allow them to school us in the word of God, but for us to be in it humbly sharing what the word of God actually says. So Jesus says this, continuing in verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you, use this, <clears throat> why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus brings up a really good point. There are folks, I've been those folks, where it's like, hey, let me tell you what's all wrong about your life. Let me get the speck out of your eye when this big, huge plank's just sticking out of my eye. And Jesus kind of calls us out on that. Like, we've got to be careful that we aren't calling people out for the same uh, not just the same sin, but sin in general, when we ourselves are not working to get ourselves cleaned up. Christ has died that we might be purified, not just collectively, but individually. And sometimes Christians, and I'm not trying to throw us under the bus, but we all do it and I do it, we, we become the morality police of our country when we ourselves aren't keeping our own house clean. So we have to first focus on what Christ is calling out of our lives. But Jesus doesn't say 
that the speck in your brother's eye is not there. That's the point that most uh, non-Christians and some uh, Christians who don't really know the word, that's what they miss. Jesus still calls that speck in your brother's eye, it's still a speck in their eye. It's still something that shouldn't be there. It's just first deal with what you've got going on, not to find perfection, not to be perfect in the eyes of the world, but hey, what do you got going? What, what speck do they have that maybe is something really big in your life? Use that as a time of reflection to look at yourself and say, Lord, where am I, where am I not crucifying my flesh? Where am I engaging or approving of sin in my life, letting it sort of reside and just kind of hang on on the couch of my life and not kicking it out? Once you do that, or, or once you're on that road to what we would call sanctification, then you can actually help a person. See, just telling somebody they have a speck in their eye is not really helping them. It kind of is, but it's not the kind of help that we're called to be as Christians. To just point out, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Well, then how do we fix that? How do they, how do they get from that place of being wrong to the place where they're right before God? You know, how can we... Uh, tell them about the gospel of Jesus that tells them that while they were still sinners, that Christ died for them. That the cross of Christ was for every person who calls on the name of Christ, that they won't be put to shame. That they will be saved from the wrath of God that they've incurred because of sin. See, it's not, it's not enough to just say, hey, there's a speck in your eye when we have a, a plank in our own eye and then we, if we actually get to a place where that's removed and then just telling them again, you have a speck in your eye, that's not exactly, that may be the beginning of love, but it's not the continuation or the fulfillment of it. Jesus was really good at finding people who were deep in sin. Like the worst of sins, the sins that we would go, oh, you're doing what? And he would find them and he'd say, things like you're forgiven, but then go and sin no more. And you'd find those people clamoring to Jesus, just trying to get closer to them because, to him because they knew that's where fulfillment was. They knew that's where sin would cease. And so this message is for you, the people here primarily who are like, I know what I'm doing is wrong and I want to stop doing it. And the more I try, the more it seems like I'm involved in it. Like it just draws me in. Paul says in Romans chapter seven that that which I know to do I don't do. And that which I know not to do, I end up doing that. Calls himself a horrible, wretched man. Concludes with, who will save me? Jesus. Jesus will save me. Read Romans chapter 7 this week if you are so inclined. 1 Corinthians 4 and 1 says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they may be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any, or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I, am not therefore, I, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring the light of the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul says something very interesting there. He says, you know, I don't have to, I'm not worried about you judging me. I don't know of anything that I can be judged for, but just because I'm ignorant to possible sin in my life doesn't mean I'm acquitted. Doesn't mean I'm not, I can't be blamed for something. The point is I'm not worried about the judgment of the world. I'm worried about Christ's judgment upon me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. And that, what Paul says is, look, the judgment of salvation, that will be determined by Christ. And until a person 
leaves this earth by death, we don't know what the Lord holds for them. We might look at somebody like Abil Mahar. If you guys know who he is, he's a comedian, um, host of different shows, uh, self-proclaimed atheist, hates religion, Christianity especially. And most of you would say, well, that guy's going to hell. And you know what? If, if Bill Mahar died yesterday, that might be the possibility. But as long as that man or any man like him is still breathing and living, there's the potential for them, for them to give their life to Christ. Many of, of, of history's men who are devout atheists, men who went after Christianity to debunk it, men like C.S. Lewis, they end up becoming Christians themselves. Because there's something about the power of the word of God that even when you go in to try to to disprove it, it still penetrates and gets in there and causes new life. The, the, the voice of the Lord is heard and people give their life to Christ, even though they were totally against him. And so the judgment that we're not allowed to pass is you're saved and you are not. You know, most people will come and tell me, yes, I'm, I'm, a, I'm born again Christian, I'm saved, and I'll just take them at their word. Because I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming that what they've done is repented of their sin, it, it, it received the grace of Christ, that they have placed their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I assume that. But maybe when they come and say that, what they're thinking is, well, I've always been in church. I grew up in the church. My parents were Christians, you know. I always go to church, so I'm pretty much a Christian. Well, I don't know that. I have to just kind of take them at their word. But it would also be wrong for me to look at a person and say, you know what? Because they're doing A, B, and C, they're not saved. That's judgment. Jesus might love them very, very much. They just might be really, really bad at being a good Christian. And so I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know where they're going. So when it comes to judgment, we're not allowed to judge people's eternity, but we are absolutely allowed to, especially with our Christian brothers, to call them out on their sin. Hey, so I saw you do this. What about that? Well, the word says this, and I see you doing this. Can we talk about this? You know, it's not an excuse for going there and all obnoxious and, hey, you better stop sinning. I mean, unless it's your little brother, you can get away with that. But if it's, but if it's anybody else, you know, hey, you know, can we talk? Can I buy you some coffee? Can we talk about something? I'm confused. I love you very much. I'm not coming from a place of judgment, but, but what I see in the word and what I see you're doing, I see that you're going down a bad road because here's what we know as Christians with experience. When we engage in sin, it never ends well. It ends in pain. It ends in heartbreak. It ends in misery. And it leads you to repentance, and that's good. But man, if we can avoid that part, if we can avoid the, the, the pain that comes from thinking, yeah, we're, this is okay, then we want to help our brothers and sisters in Christ by telling them, look, just, just seek the Lord, pray, look at these verses, read them, see what God has to say. And, and you know what? I'm praying for you and I love you. If they're obnoxious, well, then maybe just say, okay, again, praying for you and let the Lord deal with their hearts. Because if you can't convince them, then it's not in your hands anymore. Let the Lord get to them. If the Lord's not getting to them, what are you going to say that the Lord already hasn't? So just love them, care for them, don't approve of their sin, don't engage in their sin with them, but let them know you love them, that you'll be praying for them. But Paul says, don't let anybody judge you according to what? What you, uh, let's see, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Because what had happened is people would come in and said, Hey, you know, um, if you're a Christian, you don't drink wine or you don't drink alcohol. And if you're a Christian, you don't eat meat. 
And if you're a Christian, you don't do this. And you only do this on a certain day. And you celebrate these festivals. And you do this and you do that. And Paul says, don't let anybody judge you according to that. These things are a shadow. They were a shadow of what was to come. Can you imagine Jesus showing up? Like literally walking in the back door. Like, hey, Jesus, good to see you. And he comes in. And, you know, we all go outside because I started off this analogy bad. We go outside, and the sun's shining, and there's, he's casting a shadow. And people are bowing down and worshiping the shadow. And you're looking around going, but Jesus is right here. Why are you worshiping the shadow? Oh, glorious shadow, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus, th this is whom we worship. And Paul says, in the same way that folks are worshiping a shadow, that's what's happening when they're like, yeah, Jesus is good, but add all this other stuff. They're worshiping the shadow of who Jesus is, not Jesus himself. That these Old Testament uh, festivals and rituals that God called the Israelite people to were not the end all. They were fulfilled in Christ. They were a shadow of who was to come. And so we live in a day and an age, right, where people get judged for everything. They'll tell you things like, don't judge, lest you be judged. Uh, you know, and then you, you meet somebody who's like, uh, I don't know, let me... I homeschool. So you meet somebody who, who's a homeschooler and they go to public school and, and what you sometimes see is people bickering over that, like judging one over the other. It's like, wait a minute, neither one of those is, is right or wrong, bad or good. Which one works for your family? Go ahead and go do that. Is that what the Lord's calling you to? Great, send them to public school, homeschool, whatever. But to get on these different sort of uh, mountains or sides and say, hey, you're wrong and say, no, you're wrong. And really, you're just two different things is really silly, and, and Paul says, don't let anybody do that to you. Don't let anybody disqualify you of salvation because you drink alcohol time and time again. Now listen, alcoholism is a very, very, very real thing, right? People get drunk and then they drive, they abuse their spouses or their children, and they just do God-awful things as a result of being involved in alcohol. When I preach about uh, alcohol and the consumption of it, and I say, you know, the Bible doesn't speak against it. The Bible does absolutely drink, uh, uh, speak against drunkenness and not being sober-minded and not being alert and not being engaged with the people around you. So when I, when I talk about being judged about alcohol, know this, it is a very real dangerous thing. Don't enter into that lightly. But also don't allow somebody, because you had a glass of wine uh, last night, to, to help you sleep or to settle your stomach or whatnot, um, then judge you and say, well, you're not saved because the kingdom of God is not what you eat and not what you drink. The kingdom of God is a person named Jesus. And so if you were sinfully doing anything, alcohol, sex, work, if you're turning those good things into God things, then you have tried to find fullness in them, then they've been perverted. And now you have to abstain from them until your heart is corrected so that you can actually appreciate them as God has called you to them. But don't let anybody judge you because your conscience allows you the eating of meat. Now, the, Paul will, will later in a different book say, look, you know, he gives an example of, you know, hanging out with a friend who doesn't eat meat. They're just ordering a salad and you ordered like, a 42-ounce T-bone steak, and, 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 and they're kind of offended by that. And so what Paul says to do is, you know, put that aside. Eat a salad with your friend. 
Why would you want to push them away from Jesus so that you can enjoy a steak? Now, I, I love a steak like anybody else that's not vegan. Um, I, 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 would, I would have been that person who ordered that steak while the friend ordered the salad. But the Bible says, you know what? Consider their conscience. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Love them as you would want to be loved. And consider maybe for the time putting that aside and enjoying a salad with your friend. Because the best thing is that you two would be united, not that you would be divided over something as silly as meat. Why would you want to betray or alienate somebody just to satisfy something of the flesh? There are plenty of other good things to eat. Trust me, I've tasted a lot of them. And so if you've got to set that aside for a friend for a time, that is a good thing the Bible says. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Paul, Paul is now bringing out a specific flaw. Up until now, Paul has kind of just laid some groundwork and now he's getting to the actual, like real meat of the issue. And that's the, the incorporation of Christianity and Judaism. This would look like what I've already described, which is, you know, you're saved. You put your place, you've placed your faith in Jesus as the word is said. But you know, you're not celebrating the Sabbath or, or the new moon or the, or, or the tabernacles or the, the trumpets or the Passover. You're not celebrating these other festivals. And you know what? You're not abstaining from this and you're not abstaining from that. In, in, in the Old Testament, God gave the, the Jewish people some 600 different laws. Now, we go back to like the Ten Commandments, and they're all kind of encapsulated by that. But he gave some like 660 different laws to the people. And so um, one particular law would be something like not working on the Sabbath. Now, that's a good thing. For those of you who work seven days a week, a day off would be a great thing, wouldn't it? And some of you aren't in a place where you could do that, but I'm telling you that if you're not doing that, you're, you're burning the candle at both ends, and it's not going to be sustained forever that a Sabbath day of rest, whatever day of the week that is, a place where you can recharge, devote yourself to the Lord, you know, just spend some time with your family and recharge was wired into you through God. Don't, don't neglect that. Please, if you can, do whatever you can to, to take a time, schedule some time off for yourself and for your family so you don't run yourself into the ground. But, but one particular law was no work on the Sabbath. So, um, that becomes kind of ambiguous, doesn't it, in a sense? Well, what constitutes work? You know, what, what happens if you work in the medical field and you get called in that day? Or you're a pastor and you have to preach on that day? Or, or, or you know, you're, you're a fireman and there's an emergency. Well, you know, I, I can't go. And so what the Jews did is they, they, they wrote another book and, and it included what work constituted. And it was something like, you know, anything, lifting anything heavier than your foot. You know, things like that. But then that's even subjective, isn't it? Or is it, That's kind of vague. Everybody's foot weighs a little different, right? Everybody's just... A, so, so it got so detailed that nowadays, if you go to places like Israel, um, you go to an elevator, they have a special Sabbath elevator. It's an elevator that stops at every floor because if you push a button, it causes an electrical response inside this, you know, the machine of the elevator, the computer of the elevator which is basically like fire, which is basically working. So you can't even push the button of the elevator. So you wait for the door to open, you walk in, and if you're on the second floor and you're waiting to get to the 54th floor, well, you wait for 52 floors because you can't work that day. There are laws against traveling um, certain distances unless you're going over a, bo a body of water. So folks will put a bottle of water, water under their chair so that 
um, they're actually moving over a body of water. In places like New York City, and there are some 200 cities like this, there is invisible wire. It's not invisible, it's clear. <clears throat> set up around the city. Because according to the Jewish law, um, you can do certain types of work within your own home. So what they've done, you can Google this and look it up. They've set up these wire, this clear wire all throughout, you know, whole city, like in New York City, includes Central Park and different, it's a big space of land. You can, <laughs> you can still work within that city because they've declared that, that boundary to be home. And so I just imagine the Lord up in heaven going, oh, you're working on this. Oh, you know, you got that wire. Darn it. I almost had you. But you set up that clear wire. I see how you did that. Kudos to you getting, getting around my law like that. When you focus on the letter of the law in that way, we refer to that as legalism. Following the law of God is not legalism. When God says thou shalt not kill, you can't say, well, you killed somebody. Well, don't be a legalist, you know, I don't have to follow that Old Testament law. No, we find that the, morali the, the laws of morality in, in the Old Testament, they continue over. Things like thou shalt not kill or steal, honoring your mother and father, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, what's the other ones? Don't lie, things like that. Those things still continue today. Jesus fulfilled the, 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 the law that included um, things like eating shellfish, and, and, and the ceremonial laws, that was the word I was looking for. And the festival laws, the laws that say you have to celebrate a certain time. He also fulfilled the governmental laws. We no longer live under the government of, of what we would call a, a, a theocracy, where, where God is, is like our president and, and we follow the laws that he's given in that way. We are now people who are led by the Holy Spirit through the law that Jesus has given us. The law to love your neighbor as yourself the law to honor God before anybody. Jesus said, if you do those two laws, you fulfilled them all. All the 600 laws or whatever that are found in the Old Testament, you, you've done them all because you've done those first two. You have fulfilled them all. So as Christians, we're not looking to, well, did we, you know, when I tithe, did I tithe on net or gross? You know, did I round down? You know, what? no, did you give? Did you see somebody who was in need and did you help them? You know, the Pharisees would tithe on their spice rack. You know, they would have their spices, which was a, you know, a, it was wealth in that day. But, you know, I got, you know, a, a pound of, of cumin, so I've got to give some to the temple. And they were so, they were so detailed in how much they gave, but then they'd watch somebody in the street dying and then turn their head from them. And so I would just ask you, would Jesus be more honored and loved by you helping that person in the street or by how much you gave on a Sunday morning? still give. Don't get me wrong there. But man, if there's somebody who's in need and, and you can help them, then help them. Love them. Care for them. If you've read the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, what, what happens? The guy comes, the Samaritan man finds this guy on the road, takes him to a hotel and says, hey, clean him up. I'll pay for his expenses. If anything else comes up, I'll take care of it too. And so maybe you don't have that kind of wealth. But what about the friends that need a ride? What about the friends who Man, they just, they, things are so tight and they're working 60 or 70 hours a week and mom and dad haven't seen each other. What about babysitting for them so they can just have some time with each other? What about making them a meal so they don't have to worry about working both their jobs and coming home and making a meal for everybody? Just bring them a casserole. Or, or go to Walmart and get them a rotisserie chicken or something. Like, just alleviate some of that. Show them some love because Christ first loved you. 
The flaw of the church was they became so inwardly focused, they no longer focused on Christ. Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Anybody know what asceticism is? It's basically like having really good willpower. Don't touch that. Okay, I'm not going to touch it. I trained, uh, we have these two golden retrievers, and one's a puppy, he's still learning, but the older one, um, I trained him that when I pour out his food, um, that he sits and waits, and then when I say, get it, boy, and I snap my fingers, then he'll get it. Um, Sarah was doing that with him last night. It's the funniest thing. Uh, and he was kind of like, he, he looked at her and kind of went towards it, but then he looked at me like, are, you, are we cool with this? Like, can I go? And I looked at it, and Sarah's like, he won't eat his food because you didn't do it. I, I was like, okay, get it, boy. And he started chowing down. Asceticism, just withstanding long enough, I can do it, I can do it. And Paul says at the end of the scripture, that does no good for fighting the indulgence of the flesh. Indulgence of the flesh is a bad thing. But the way you fight it is not just by withstanding and using willpower. The world can do that. There are plenty of people I've met who stop smoking without Jesus, stop drinking without Jesus, stop beating their wife without Jesus. But they themselves have not been completely changed. It's just asceticism. Just this, this willful manipulating, the, the beating of your body to abstain from something. And the world can do that, and God's not calling you to that. And I love that he, he has brought with him the power for me to overcome sin and you to overcome sin that doesn't just involve our willpower. I, have, I don't have very good willpower. You take me to the store with my kids, I'll buy them a toy every time. I can have five bucks in my pocket. I'm looking for a way to buy them something. Why? Because I have no willpower. My, my daughter, she loves these little stuffed animals. They're called Beanie Boos. They have these big, big, huge eyes, and she just loves them. And if, if I go to a store, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for them now. I go by myself. They sell them like at Save-On, and they sell them at different little convenience stores. And I go, and I'll get what I'm, well, I'm going to go see what kind of Beanie Boos they have today. What can I get for Ellie? And I just bought her one two days ago. And I don't have the money to spend, but man, if I could just, if I could just do this right now, that would be really awesome to see her face light up because I got no willpower. I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and uh, just don't do things. Well, because sin's powerful, right? We know that. Some sin was really easy to kick, but there's other sin in our lives. And man, we've been just been dealing with that for ages. Paul says just simply imposing human will to stop something, that's not what we're called to do. He mentions three different things. First is asceticism. The Holy Spirit has come to warn us about sin, that we may call out to God to get delivered from that sin. The folks who quit smoking, what usually happens, or quit drinking, or quit doing this sin, what they usually do, it's like a dial on an old-fashioned television, you know, with the click, click, click. They just move from one sin to the next sin. And they do the same thing, just in a different flair. So now they're no longer smoking, but they're overeating. Or maybe now they're not overeating, but now they're drinking. Because these things externally were just the symptoms. They weren't really the problem. The problem was lack of a change of heart. And that's what the word is getting to. That's what Jesus is getting. He wants you. He wants your heart. He doesn't want you just to be cleaned up on the outside. He wants to clean you up from the inside out. If he can get to your heart, these other things will dry up. It's like killing the root of a plant. You know, have you ever tried to kill weeds? And you just cut them down. You're like, yeah, got you. And you come back in a few days, they're there again. You're like, what the? I just, I just killed you. And they're like, I'm back again. With our sin, if we don't get to the root, it just comes back. 
It might come back a little different. It might come back in a different flair, but it comes back. So Jesus would rather get to the root and pull that out rather than just cause you to beat yourself up all day long. Asceticism. Number two, he deals with angels. We live in a culture that worships angels, okay? We, we, we put them on stuff. We turn them into fat little babies, and they're floating around, and on Valentine's Day, they shoot you with their arrow, and you fall in love and whatnot, and, and, and pray to angels. And if you've read the Bible, if you've read the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, when we're, angels get worshiped, angels freak out. They don't like it because they know it's wrong. Angels are created beings. They're created differently than us, but they're created nonetheless. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, John, he, he's, he's telling about this, this experience he had. And he says, then I fell down at his feet and worshiped him. This was an angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. Can you imagine being an angel who has stood in the presence of God and this human starts worshiping you? You're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, I didn't, I didn't tell him to do that. This is all him, man. I love you. I worship you. I don't know what this cat's doing. Because I'm a jazz musician and I say cat now. What in the world's wrong with me? And you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. It'll happen again in the 22nd chapter. It happens in the book of, uh, different books of the Old Testament, different prophets who, who get confronted by the supernatural being. And if you read about the angels, they're not little fat cherubim that just float around with little tiny wings. They're these, they're these they almost are like monsters. They're, they've got wings and faces and they go around and there's thunder claps and they just sound real dangerous. Like if an angel showed up, I would be kind of scared. And some folks bow down and worship and the angels are always good to say, no, no, you don't worship me, you worship Jesus. If you find yourself worshiping an angel, angels are amazing beings. They get sent by the Lord to, to minister to us, and that's great, and we, we follow that biblically, but they aren't to be worshiped. They aren't to be held on the same level as God. This particular angel here talking to John says, no, we're fellow servants just like you. We're different beings, we're different creatures, but we were created by the same God nonetheless, and we're doing work together. And we can't call out angels and we can't force them to do stuff. They're fellow servants along with us. God tells them what to do and they do it. And if you get ministered to and it was an angel, awesome. And if it wasn't, God's still gonna do something for you in that way. But we are called not to worship angels. Lastly, visions. We live in a day where guys get up on TV especially and they have all these visions and they envision all this stuff. And people just go, oh, they had a vision, blah, blah, blah. And Paul says there's these guys and they have these visions and they're all puffed up in themselves. And, and, and there's a problem. And it's the same problem with angels and the same problem with asceticism. What's happened is that they've been severed. The head of Christ, who is Christ, they have been severed off from that. So now their visions are just really them talking because they like to hear their own voice and because they want to be important. And if you tell somebody you had a vision, nine times out of 10, if they're weak-minded, they'll be like, you had a vision? Tell me all about it. Our vision's a bad thing though. Our angel's a bad thing. Is abstaining from sin a bad thing? No, these are all good things, great things. But when they're severed from the head of Christ, they become bad things. And so you have a folk, uh, person who'll say, well, I had this vision. Okay, well, what does the Word of God say about that? Does the Word of God line up with the vision that you had? John had this vision, in the, you know, it became the book of Revelation. It lines up with all of the, the, the Old and New Testament combined. 
When somebody says, well, I had this vision, it's not imagination. Some folks think vision is imagination. That's not true. Some people think vision is, is simply saying something and then God having to do it. I have this vision that our church will be two stories tall and be filled with 500 people. I just, I just said that. So now God's got to do it. It's my vision. No, that's not what the Bible describes as vision. Vision is often something that happens in a dream. All throughout the Bible, God talked to people through dreams. Said, you know, to men like Solomon and David and Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, they, they talked to him. He talked to them in dreams. They had these visions. Peter had a trance where he saw the sheet unfold and he was told to go and to eat these unclean animals. And, and it was a metaphor of going out and preaching to the Gentiles that they were allowed to worship Jesus too. When it comes to vision, it's something that you can't concoct. It's not something that you can just make up. It's something that God does to you and it's backed up by the word of God. Well, I had a vision that God told me that I was supposed to marry this woman and she knows nothing about it and she's not really for it. Well, now, wait a minute. He told you, but not her? And trust me, this happens in church a lot. And vice versa, or I'm going to be married by this day. Well, okay, well, we'll just wait and see, I guess. And the Bible's really clear that when you make those kind of prophetic words and then they don't come to pass, that the Lord wasn't with you. It wasn't true at all. You find my favorite game is when the, the, the quote-unquote prophet says, you know, if you don't do this, uh, Israel's going to be destroyed and blah, blah, blah. And then it doesn't happen. Oh, well, our prayers staved off God's anger and wrath. Like, maybe you just didn't really say anything in the name of the Lord. Maybe you just made that up because the word of God doesn't back it up and it didn't happen. So I just doubt that maybe that the Lord was speaking to you, at least in that particular sense. But all of it comes back to not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Lastly, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish when they are used according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You want to destroy sin in your life, connect yourself to God. Through Jesus, by his word, by prayer, with his church. It's the only way. Everything else is just asceticism, Everything else is just willpower and eventually you'll fold. You'll, you'll pull it off for days, weeks, maybe even years. But eventually that sin will be, you know, that sin hasn't been dealt with, just the symptoms have. You know, imagine yourself having a cold and you're coughing like crazy, so you take cough medicine. But have you really fixed anything? No, you haven't gotten to the root of the issue of why you're coughing. You've just medicated it. God doesn't want you just to medicate your sin. He wants you to eradicate your sin. And the only way you, way you will do that is by continuously, daily, giving your life to Jesus. All this other stuff has the appearance of wisdom, but at the end of the day, it's nothing. So, the good news is that Jesus came to liberate. Jesus stood up in, the te in, the, in, the, in a synagogue one day and they asked him to preach, which I think is really weird. 
Like, maybe you guys don't think that's weird, but from a, a position of being a pastor, if some guy just came in, you know, if, if it's Jesus, give him the benefit of the doubt. But if it wasn't Jesus, any other guy comes in and says, hey, I have a message, I wouldn't let him up here. If I don't know who they are, maybe if I know who they are and I say, no, you're an ungodly man, I'm not going to let you come up here and, and lead the flock somewhere that, that I don't even know what you're going to say. That's dangerous. Nonetheless, in the temple, Jesus shows up. The, the, the rabbi of the synagogue says, hey, Jesus, want to read the scroll today? Okay. So he opens it up. This is Luke 4.18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set, a liberty, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I believe this is uh, Isaiah 61, if I'm not mistaken. And I could be, and if I am, you just tell me later. The point is this. Jesus came to liberate you. Not to just polish you up, not to just put a new suit on you, but to liberate you from your sin, to liberate you from that which divides you and him. So today, give your life to Christ. Today, begin to live for him. Let's stand. I'm gonna have Pastor Ben come up if he's available. You available? Right on. Come on up. And so I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to ask the Lord to do something, anything, that would change you, change your eyes, change your mind, change your heart, so that you see sin, that you see the life that he has for you in a completely new life. Or excuse me, a completely new light and in a new life. I want to pray for you. Play whatever you want, Pastor Ben. Father God, we praise you today. And it is not easy for, for us, Lord, many of us around this room, we are gripped by some type of sin. And maybe we've kind of muted it. We've kind of suppressed the pain of it, but we haven't dealt with it, Lord. When we do, we go after it with, with things like asceticism. We just try to hold on to willpower to get through so that we can fight another day. And, and Lord, the best of us, have gone a certain amount of time and then it gets the best of us again. Father, I want to pray for your people today that they wouldn't just conquer a sin through their own willpower, but they would begin to see sin as you see sin. That the Holy Spirit working inside of them, causing good fruit to grow, Lord, would kill off the weeds of our spirit. That, the, that sin that's so so clinging, Lord. It just, it, it, it cleaves to us, Lord, that it would come out from, be cut out from the root. Not because we were so strong, but because you were so faithful. That you showed us how we were feeding that sin and you gave us the power to not feed it anymore. Father, I don't want any of your people here to cling to me, a Bible study, worship service, I'm praying that they would cling to you today. That you would be their only hope. That you wouldn't just be a list, uh, on the list of hopes that would, that would save us, but it would be just be you. That if your grip should loosen, then everything would just fall apart. But we know, Lord, that you are holding on with a strength and a power that's not limited by us. I pray, Lord, that for those of us who have felt disqualified because we've sinned, Lord, who have felt as though our salvation was taken away or that we aren't worthy or, or not loved by you, Lord, that we wouldn't 
follow, listen to that lie or follow that logic anymore. That that arrow that the enemy shoots at us, Lord, will just be quenched and extinguished. To know that we were loved by you before we ever did anything. That as we've placed our faith in you, now we have been accepted. That we stand not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. That we've been justified by his sinless works, not our own. Jesus, I pray for your people. I pray for what you preached in that synagogue that day, the liberation of your people, that captives would be set free, that we'd feel and know your love, hear your voice, and be changed by you. May you receive all the glory today, Lord. May you be exuberant with your people today. We love you. In Jesus' name.